Welcome to FF Plus, a new spoiler-free outlet for movie reviews, entertainment recommendations, and discussion. Here you will find a little bit of everything, from what's been entertaining us, to trailer reactions, industry hot topic conversation, and even film award predictions. We hope you'll enjoy this addition to the Feelin' Film lineup and join us each week. Now, on to the show. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of FF+. I'm Aaron, one of your hosts, and with me is my co-host and best friend, Patrick. Hello, everyone. Now, it has been a hot minute since we've really done these, Patrick. We kind of forgot about FF+, people no, might think. No, we didn't forget. We just didn't have a lot to talk about. Let's just be honest. This is what we talk about. We talk about Oscars. We talk about upcoming movies. And January sucks because we don't have anything worth talking about except what we're about to talk about. Okay, I'm glad you said worth talking about. Because the first time you said we didn't have anything to talk about, and I was going to say, well, anything worth talking about. And you're, you nailed it right there because, yeah, there's just not been anything worth putting in even more time and work than we already do to put out an extra episode. But this is one of the ones that I personally look the most forward to every single year. Getting the email from the press contact that we have that sends yes. us all of the short films that are nominated for the Oscars. These are such a blast to watch, and I know you, as a short film director, probably have an even bigger connection to watching them. I think it's just, yeah, it's a fantastic medium, and uh, it, I think I mentioned this to you, that it's like getting an extra Christmas present to see these in my inbox and uh, to get a chance to watch them. Me too. And this year, we are going to go ahead and we're going to talk through them, so... Spoiler warning, I'm going to put that out there because, frankly, it's really difficult to discuss a short film without discussing what happens in it. And a couple of these do have some twists to them that I, I kind of want to discuss. So, I mean, they're not going to ruin your experience, I don't think, if you maybe. I don't know what to say about it. Other than we're going to talk about them and we're going to spoil them, so you've been warned. Uh, you can find most of these out there online. If you were so inclined, I think you could have seen them in the theaters. They might still be playing some places. I'm not sure. They have those showcases going before the Oscars. Uh, check them out. But yeah, this is a crop of live action, animation, and then documentary films. And we will talk through each one. We will, I think, maybe at the end, we'll give our order of them or something. How do you want to do this? Oh, I mean, I just, I think they're all pretty great but yeah i'll okay. what i'll do is i can i was thinking about reading as we're going through these just giving my like here's what i think is going to take the oscar even well, though i know we're going to talk about that but i wouldn't i wouldn't do that now save that oh for, man i want to yeah, know you know you need to save your you can talk about what you like here but save save okay. your picks for the second half of this show which listeners after we go through the short films we are going to make our official Oscar predictions will tell you what we think is going to win and what we want to win. Unlike the myriad of other shows out there, like the Next Best Picture podcast, Mike Mike and Oscar, In Session Film, I mean, I could go on with partner podcasts that we interact with all the time that do amazing awards coverage all year long. That's not Patrick and I's thing. We like to celebrate the nominees more than the winners. But, you know, we get wrapped up in it. The Oscars and the Academy Awards is coming, and it's kind of like a Super Bowl for us, and we want to play the game, and we'll tell you what our picks are. But please don't think that we're uh, up here telling you that we are the experts by any means. Um, is there a pop on the line? I do need to know 
if there's a pop oh man i'm running a bad streak of losing pops to you but yes there is a pop on the line i will say this just as a disclaimer i have not put my confidence points next to my picks just know we're not doing that are we not okay well i mean we need to probably have a tiebreaker of some kind do we want to do that i haven't done that either that's going to take too much time we did that last year and jeremy held the uh held the ballots close to his chest so that none of us would cheat <laughs> and like change our confidence picks but we'll we'll decide the 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 wager can, later yeah we okay we'll do that offline either way there will be a pop on the line and then we will uh, announce the winner of that pop on our Oscar recap episode in which we will also be announcing the recently closed voting uh for the feelers choice awards so we'll have the winners ready to go for you on the Tuesday morning after the Oscars. Okay. All that stuff out of the way. Let's get into it. Live action shorts. Patrick, do you want to pick one to talk about first? Or do you want me to just start going down the list? Just start going down the list. All right. Well, I'm going to go with the order that I watched them because that's where my notes lie. So I started with The Neighbor's Window. And I think that's because I'd watched the other groups first. And I was like, oh, there's like all foreign language stuff here. (laughs) And that is one thing that I have noticed in recent years is that a lot of foreign films make their way into these nominations in all the categories. Um, Overwhelmingly so. Yeah, that's that's for sure. And I think that's good because I personally have not gotten a chance to venture out into the world of international flavor when it comes to filmmaking and narratives and things like that. And so for me personally, getting a chance to have short films in front of me, whether they're animated doc or, um, or live action, knowing that the majority of them live in the international world, I think it it just, it helps me better appreciate what's out there beyond just what's stateside. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. I, I agree. Um, totally gives us some unique perspectives that we would not have otherwise. Uh, but that's not the case with The Neighbor's Window. So <laughs> The Neighbor's Window, I actually saw it described as a mashup of the movies Marriage Story and Rear Window. And I thought that was an incredibly well and very clever way to put what happens in this short film. So I will say this one knocked me off my socks, Patrick, or not me out of my socks. I was blown away by it. I started in the first act and we are following this husband and wife and they discover that there's their window faces another apartment across the street. And that window is always open and it's a young couple and they're very frisky and having sex and just having sex a lot, apparently. And, and the window is open and partying. Oh yes. And partying and then having sex. And so this couple is like, you know, they've got kids. There's a new baby on the way. They've they're locked in marital life, right? In that normal routine that they go through and they kind of get into like letting this spice up their fantasies in their heads. And during the first act, I was just telling myself, no, 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 this is way too real because it felt like something that maybe has happened to me or that could happen uh, in real life very easily for you to kind of be distracted by this and for this thing to start coming between them. Um, And by the third act, I was just feeling very devastated and it really turns on its head what happens. And I liked the way that this subtly 
gives us in a short period of time that whole experience of teaching us that we need to be working harder to live in the moment and to cherish what we have in front of us every day. And it is very easy to see that the grass is greener on the other side of the window in this case, but that someone on the other side looking at you may be thinking the same thing about your situation. Um, I thought it was really beautifully shot and just really perfectly edited, perfectly constructed it. And they dropped a song by the national in the middle of it in the second act that I was just like, okay, you've got me. I thought it was great too. And didn't expect to, for it to go where it went. Um, I, I tried to put little bullets for these reviews to kind of spark my, my thoughts. So for this discussion and one of my bullets was I would move <laughs> because it is so, if you were which couple, <laughs> the that's, one... the, that's the thing is by the <laughs> end of the movie, I'm like, I would move. And because it speaks to the fact that there is so much exposure, literally and metaphorically, that these two families, these two couples have, that you do get this understanding of how one half lives and this expectation of what life could be like or what it was meant to be like. There's a there's a moment in the in the narrative where our main couple is kind of regretting the fact that they can't stay up past like eight or nine that the most exciting part of the world is taking their kids to the zoo and it's a by the time the narrative finished by the time the story finishes it's a great look at the fact that you know what mundane life doesn't have to be defined as mundane it's a good life and uh, i thought it was a, a beautiful ending to a story, especially with the interesting twist that takes place near the end that kind of brings that message across. Yeah, totally, totally agree. Um, the next one that I had was Saria. And this is a story based on true events of an orphanage in, I want to say, Guatemala, where there was some abuse happening uh, to the kids there. And at one point, the kids stage a daring escape to get away. They are caught and rounded up. Many of them brought back. And as punishment, they are locked in a room. A fire starts and 40 plus, I believe it was, end up perishing in this room. The door stays locked for up to nine minutes, I think is what I saw. Something like that uh, before it gets unlocked and they they die. So in this horrible fire. How did this one go over for you? It was hard to watch. Yes, it was devastating. In fact, I need in the future, I'm going to need um, a little like, is this going to be happy or sad? Uh, so I can finish out these sections of films on a happy note. Watching this, I think, was probably one of the more evocative, like emotionally evocative uh, experiences I've had. Um, one of the notes I wrote was Annie, but so sad because you have this this story that centers around a an individual a one girl but this girl is really representative of the entire group um and then what i what i loved about it is how it gave us some personal touches it allowed us to connect with her on a personal level there were innocent conversations about liking a boy and about how her friend should dress in order to get the boy to like her. I mean, very innocent adolescent things. 
mixed in with this uh, corrupt, gross, uh, disgusting, um, incredibly uh, painful situation that these girls are in. I mean, the whole the opening shot is fantastic, where you have this camera following these footsteps and there's a bug in the foreground walking back and forth. And I'm like, is this bug going to get hurt or what's going to happen? And then the first thing you hear in this native tongue is time to wake up bitches. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, what am I watching? And so to find out that the story was, uh, based on true events just made it that much tougher to watch, especially by the end credits when you see, uh, the 42 girls listed, uh, who died in the fire. Yeah. And, it, you know, something else that made it kind of extra powerful learning at the end of it was that they used girls from or kids from the home today to be the actors for this situation. I think it's, a couple decades old is when this happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is wild to me. Yeah. To be honest, um, there's some more historical facts that are brought up about, you know, whether or not anyone was ever found responsible for this. I think charges were brought, but ultimately maybe dropped and no one was ever held accountable. So I'll say this. I had an issue with this one. It, it, my emotions were stunted and I was not feeling as much as I thought that I should be or that I wanted to, even though it's such a sad situation and that it's shedding light on a very real problem, which is abuse that happens in these places around the world. Places that are supposed to protect and care for children where abuse is taking place. But there was something that I left me disconnected, something that felt almost overly fake about the way that it was playing out the ending of this film, the way that it shows how the door is left closed is hard for me to kind of believe. I I don't think it's supposed to be realistic uh, in nature. I'm sure it is not historically correct. It's kind of more of like a, Hey, this is representative of, of what kind of occurred from a, decision-making process, you know, and I, it's like, get that, but it just, I don't know, something about this just did not work for me fully. And at the end, I was not nearly as kind of emotionally walloped as I thought I should be. Well, I mean, and I can see that, but the truth is if I hadn't watched one of the docs that, that we're going to talk through, I probably would have felt the same way. But the fact is there are things that happen in real life that are insanely ridiculous and we'll get into that here in uh here in a little bit with the documentaries yeah and so it makes it so it makes this event that much more believable that this woman would hang on her cell phone while this thing is happening i mean i I don't know if it really happened that way but at the very least what it does is it evokes a sense that these orphans were just that they weren't cared for at all or they were treated as property and as a means to an end for some profiteering. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, we'll move to the happy one, I guess, or the fun one. That was Nefta Football Club. Um, this one, again, I didn't love this either. And here's the reason why. I think this is a movie that is a 20-minute setup 
for a zinger at the end. And there really is nothing else to this story. It is literally 20 minutes of just getting you ready so it can pull the rug out from under you and give you a super clever moment of, oh, and then a really cool cinematic shot that kind of sells that. And that it's that and a really funny donkey joke that happens in the movie. And like that was all it was to me. It was well acted. It was cute or whatever. But I was like, really, nothing here is worth me watching for 20 minutes. I, I felt like it was seriously like somebody telling me the longest joke ever. And then by the time it got to the punchline, I was like, yeah, I, I, okay, I get it. Haha, <laughs> it's funny. So it, it kind of made me grin and giggle at times, Patrick, but I, di- I was left like going, come on, like I need something a little more sustaining throughout than for the whole time for this to be special. Yeah, I, I felt the same way. I put, uh, in some of my notes, it was very clever. Uh, and you're right. It's a, it's a long joke for a quick punchline. The punchline was funny. I like the punchline. Oh, punchline's hilarious. <laughs> and, but you're right. It feels a little bit, um, a little bit self, um, I don't know what the word is, but lighthearted enough that it made me smile. And then I put quote laundry detergent. Ha ha. But the fact is it, it's one of those movies that I think, I think it sells itself on certain parts. That last shot, I think is probably, if I were to make a guess and probably be wrong, it would be that the filmmakers are like, hey, this would be a cool shot. Let's frame something around this. And exactly. so in, in a lot of ways, I can understand that. And I don't think that's wrong. It just doesn't make for a very compelling story. No, it doesn't work in full feature narratives for me. And it doesn't work in short form. And I felt the exact same way. It was like, hey, I have this really cool ending to a funny concept. Now, how do we build backwards to get us there? And it just never feels right when a story is constructed that way to me. Um, it feels very obvious and it's distracting. So I didn't love it, um, but I can see people just going gaga over this because if you absolutely fall in love with that clever ending, it leaves you on such a high note. And especially in comparison pretty much to every other film on this list it is so different and it leaves you with a happiness about your life (laughs) and and that's something when the rest of them don't number four uh, is brotherhood Uh, this i i'm gonna let you talk about it (laughs) i didn't like it this is my least favorite of them and this is one like i went as i would say i went so far as to actually dislike and not just was like indifferent about Right. So, well, I think this has a, um, a complete story to it. I think it was in contrast to Nefta Football Club. I think it was very well thought out and I think it was executed pretty well. It centers around this, uh, family of, I believe, Palestinians or is they're Tunisian. Thank you. We had two um, films about Tunisians. Tunisian Crazy. films. Two yeah. Tunisian. Oh my God. Sorry. Anyway, it's about a, a, a Tunisian family. They're farmers and it's a um, very close family. Come to find out they have a brother who has gone off and joined the local military or local military, national military. And he has married a, I think I believe a Syrian woman. And there's this innate prejudice against her and against the choice that he's made to go off to war 
uh, by his dad where he is felt kind of um, shunned a little bit. And the, the narrative, the story just kind of takes place on his return and trying to get reacclimated to being around his family, being part of that world along with inviting and trying to bring his wife into this world. And it plays out in a way that amplifies prejudice and kind of elevates the importance of family, but kind of in a dangerous way. And it ends in a way that I didn't expect. I'm trying to figure out how to explain it. It shows this relationship that a dad has with his sons, and in particular this one. And he ends up making this crucial choice that changes the life of his son in a way that uh, I wasn't expecting. And I think some of the some of the things that I came away with is that even within a country, there are misconceptions about what you're representing. And it didn't stay with me. But I think that as a story, it was one of those that um, that I think is it's worth watching at least once. It's worth checking out if you can. But it was one that was ultimately kind of forgettable for me. Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, no, I, I don't like it at all. I think it is poorly executed. I think it's okay. a great idea. I think that it needed to have one of two things happen for it to be a good film. I think it either needed to be longer, even double the running time, uh, and really flesh out the characters and give us more development. It's very rapid fire, and I did not care about the characters enough for the twist at the end to impact me in the way that it wanted it to. Um, I think... That or you needed to just drop this whole conceit and this idea because I understand that they're trying to go for something shocking and emotionally powerful. Apparently, we're not doing spoilers after all, listeners, so far. So you're good so far because we're trying to protect them, or Patrick is. So I'm just falling in line. But the thing is, I could not fathom why the son would withhold certain truthful information from his father that ended up leading to this ultimate tragic choice right is 100% him not telling the truth and intentionally telling a lie that puts himself and his family in danger because he knows how his father's reacting. And all this would have been avoided had he simply told the truth. And so uh, I get that there is an element of being afraid to tell the truth there and all of that comes into play, but it just, didn't work for me the way that I think the filmmakers wanted to. I will say it is full of some really beautiful camera shots though. And that the father's acting in this film is fantastic. He's, he's like a Tunisian Javier Bardem or something. I mean, he's really, really good. And he has to go through a lot of emotional range and with uh, a lot of close up camera work on his face. So his expressiveness expressions are important. And he does a fantastic job with that. But overall, yeah, not at all a fan of this movie. Yeah, I would agree that having it longer and fleshing out some of those missing pieces would have helped kind of sell the emotional connection that we're trying to get to it. All right. The last one is called A Sister. And this one for me was extremely reminiscent of one of 2019's better foreign language films called The Guilty by director Gustave Moller, only this is like a shorter version of that movie. That was a feature-length 
film story about someone calling a 911 operator and that 911 operator having to work through a scenario that's sort of a mystery, make some decisions, piece information together using their resources. And essentially your whole movie is two people talking on a phone and you're trying to make that. It sounds like something you would do in a short film festival like yours that you compete in. Like they would say, okay, make a movie. And the main central point is two people have to talk on the phone for the whole movie. And then you have to figure out what you're going to do around that idea. But if I hadn't seen that one so recently, I think I would have loved this even more. I did still actually really, really like this though. I thought the performance by the 911 operator who takes the call was outstanding. Um, she has to do a lot also with expressions and she has to act in a way in which she's very calm, just like she would in real life if she was this person while on the phone and internally not being okay at all and being incredibly nervous. She makes this whole thing go. My only problem with this one, Patrick, was that from like jump, from the moment this started, I knew exactly what was happening and it was not mysterious in the slightest for me. And so for a short film, I was like, okay, like I enjoyed watching the tension be strong throughout it, but I would have, I think, liked a little more danger and it could have been an actual home run for me. And my biggest takeaway was that the 911 emergency operator is going on the list of jobs that I am not cut out to ever do. <laughs> well said, well said. I didn't like this one really at all. And I think I had the same reaction that you had to brotherhood with this one in that it took me a minute to understand what was going on. I didn't like the camera work at all, especially in the car. I get the purpose behind it, that kind of close proximity tension, that kind of thing. I didn't quite understand what the relationship was between the guy and the girl in the car was. Why would he let her talk on the phone? What's the relationship there? I don't know what that is. So the the backstory and the exposition kind of felt very incomplete. And I agree that there were great performances from both the leads, especially the 911 operator. And I kind of like the abrupt ending because it's kind of true to life that we're not seeing someone get a medal here. We're not seeing like a resolution of like, hey, this is, I mean, it, it stops and then the credits roll. But I didn't necessarily connect with the person talking on the phone because I didn't understand the weight of what was happening. Was she being kidnapped? Had she been raped? What, I mean, what, what kind of thing are you going to give me to sell me on the fact that she's actually in danger? It just sounds like she's in the car with some rude guy who picked her up and like, where is she going? Does she even know this guy? Yeah. I think that that makes sense for me because it, she, has to be mysterious because she is trying not to, t she can't say those things. She has to talk around them in circles. No, I get that. And I, and I, I like that. Go ahead. But I, but I do understand what you're saying about the relationship because we never do really fully get an understanding of who this person is. There are some questions asked in the movie from the operator that try to get to the heart of, is this, do you know this person? You know, is this person a relative? Is this person? But for me, the, the bigger hurdle was also getting back past the idea that someone would let a person that they had kidnapped or they were doing, they were trying to control against their will, make this phone call. And she says early on in the movie that he's letting her make the call because she's checking in with her sister 
to arrange for her to take care of the kids, right? But there is nothing about that phone call past the first, like, minute that has anything to do with arranging to take care of the kids. The questions and, like, if you were just to listen to this film from only what the driver of the car was hearing, there would be so many more questions being asked and so much. I, I just... Either that or he's the worst kidnapper ever known to man and she's lucky because he's bad at his job. Or he's um, arrogant enough to think that she's not doing something strategic. Maybe. I mean, but I, yes, I, I, I can I see how that there. would be a hang up there. So, yeah. so that's the five live action and we're just going to keep on rolling and move on into the animation ones now. We're going to start with the one that I thought was hilarious because these were named very similar. We went from a sister Two Sister, uh, very different movie though. This one for me, Patrick, I thought that the animation style was equal parts impressive and creepy. It's a stop motion type of animation that uses a lot of cotton uh, to make its little people. And it ultimately is tackling the horrific Chinese one child policy. Much like One Child Nation, the full-length documentary um, that was in the awards conversation this year did as well. But this does it in a very poignant manner, and it only needs about seven minutes to tell its story. I'm really glad that this was nominated for an Oscar, even though it's not my favorite. And I certainly did not love watching it because I think it's important. And there's just a lot of heart behind the story that's being told here. And it reminded me, well, it didn't remind me so much, but it made me hope that people would see this film and think about the fact that forced governmental abortion isn't the only kind that results in children who never get to live. Um, and it's just, it is a powerful way to tell that story and to view lost life uh, due to abortion for whatever the reason may be behind that act occurring. Yes, it was it was really heartbreaking and it made me mad just thinking about it afterwards. But I think the thing that stood out to me that made this short uh, memorable was the fact that you're hearing the story from the would-be brother. Most of the time when you think about that kind of issue, it's really about the parents, it's about the woman, both important. But the fact is we never get to hear about the fact that we now have a lost sibling that could have potentially been part of your world for uh, for a period of time, for for life. And I think the way in which that's revealed is really, really beautiful. Yeah, definitely. You could almost say that it's memorable, I guess, which is the title of one of the next short films. What? Why are you You're laughing? They can't hear you laughing, but I can see you laughing. So you think it's funny. See, they won't know that you think my joke is funny. Unless I tell them that you think. What are you talking about? I don't even know what you're, what you're don't, saying. Don't listen to him, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> He's lying. Don't believe his because lies. lies. I knew you were yeah. going to do that. <laughs> Speaking of memories, right? Memories. Yes. <laughs> ah, well done. We're just going to go seven degrees of sister with Aaron and Patch. Okay. Memorable. The next short film. So this is a tough one for me, particularly, and I, I would assume anyone else who has lived with relatives that have experienced one of these two conditions. I don't know fully if this is entirely trying to depict Alzheimer's or dementia. It kind of works for both, but 
I had a grandfather who had a long battle with Alzheimer's and I've lived through watching him progress from perfectly normal brain through these stages to the point of eventual death. And I was really moved by this. I think it artfully captures a lot of that experience that I went through so well. And it is such a visually unique but touching way that it does so. It is not my favorite to look at by far. I don't really like the art style, but it works very well for the surreal nature of the way that they're representing fading brain and and you're just your mind is kind of blending things together and so it captures that in a visually stunning way and i thought it was really well made short someone once described dimension to me recently as having a filing cabinet that falls over and having to put them all the files back without any kind of order and that's kind of how a person deals with memory loss and, and this detrimental disease where you open up the file cabinet and something's not there. You can remember it, but it's out of place. And to me, I, I watch this and it's just a tragic way of showing memory loss in old age. Uh, it's a great way to retranslate the world around a person. And just like with sister, it's told from the perspective of the person losing their memory. This is something I've never seen before. And I think animation is probably the best way to depict this because it gives us a peek into the world of someone who is losing their memory. And it's so scary. And it, it creates a sense of, I don't even know what I'm looking at here. Uh, not even as an audience, but just how we're seeing the world through this main character's eyes. It, it frightens me. not because like a scary movie, but just how it feels so out of control. Like I don't, I can't control what I'm seeing. And my brain is trying to say something that my eyes are trying to retranslate. And for me, it was probably the emotionally connective short of these animations. Um, I think the animation style itself is, it takes a bit to get used to. It's very rough and rugged and very kind of ugly in places but I think that's by design. And so in a lot of ways, I think it fits perfectly for what story is being told here. I would agree. I would agree. And the next one is called Daughter. This was easily my least favorite of the five. I thought it had some interesting and cool animation techniques, which is typical of all of these shorts. Usually they're going to have something that is worth seeing about the animation. It's either going to be really striking and beautiful, or it's going to be visually different than something you've seen before or something you don't see very often at least. But it was way too chaotic camera shots for me. And I did not have a great sense of the story trying to be told here. I am not sure that the silence was the right choice for this short film. And frankly, I barely made it through this and I was ready to be done with it. Okay. Well, I liked it, and I think that I like the beautifully creepy style going for it. I think, it again, it represents what the story is being told. This kind of felt a little bit like Cats in the Cradle, the song, where you have this story playing out about a a daughter who has lost the opportunity to reconnect with her dad. And I like the fact that we don't get words, that it's all done through 
action and through nonverbal cues. But I think that it's also one of those that it could be a front runner, but that animation style is very, very creepy. It's really kind of dark and it's, you, you get to a point, Aaron, where you have to, you can appreciate an art style, but it's not necessarily something you can revisit. And I, I think that that's probably something that you reacted to where it's just not something that you want to look at for a long period of time, but it's very much ambitious in terms of uh, how it was all put together, similar to memorable in terms of some of the way in which the, um, the, the stop motion was, was used. But yeah, I can see your point. And I, it, it was probably my least favorite as well, but I liked it more than you did. Well, you could like it at all, and it would be more than I did. <laughs> so you're right. Well, the next one is called Kitbull. And this has been out for a while because I've seen it multiple times before we even got to it being nominated for an Oscar this year. So I- I'm going to let you talk about it first. What did you think about Kitbull? Uh, this was my... I don't know if it was my favorite, but... I put wonderful down as one of my bullet points and I didn't love the animation style. This is one that I think the the flat style that was being used, I think could have, could have been better, but I think it's such a great story of misunderstanding. So you have this story centering around this dog and this cat. This dog has been bought by its owner. He lives outside and you come to find out that, he is um, being trained to be a um, fighting dog, which makes me sad as a dog lover. But during the course of the, the short, he meets this cat who lives like 10 feet away in a box. And um, it's just this interaction between the two of them where over the course of the dog's life, the cat is watching what's going on with the dog. And at some point, the cat befriends the dog and helps him escape and it's so tender and fun and it leaves me feeling hopeful for a happy ending when the dog escapes it's um it's a great story little it's a great little short story of friendship that uh, i definitely gravitated towards and it left me smiling yes yes it will do that my words were friends like 15 times in my review because they're friends and they're adorable. And I loved the animation style. I think that it is beautiful and it is incredibly realistic, specifically the cat. Yeah, sorry, get off me. But like when you see the way that this kitten has its hair kind of all frizzied up when it's nervous or scared, the way that it jumps backwards when it's terrified or startled, these are like legitimate actual cat animations it's almost like they mo-capped it to be mo-catted it sorry sorry that was bad um but it's almost what it's like like it's that accurate you know i watch this every day of my life constantly for three cats like attacking each other and then freaking out and jumping in this manner and i thought that was really just really really well implemented in this short but i thought it was perfection in short form storytelling it gets in, it tells its story from A to B, it's sweet, it's sad, it goes through this range of emotional journey that is powerful, it has a wonderful little score to it, it makes social commentary on the very real problem, like you said, of pitbull mistreatment in our world, um, the way that those dogs get kind of 
shoehorned into belief that they're going to be dangerous, the way that dogs do get mistreated and taught to be these guard dogs and be in, and harmful and how that can impact the rest of their lives. Uh, and, it, and it ends on a hopeful note, like you mentioned, right? Like it is so happy and sweet the way that it wraps up with that final shot. And so I may be biased because I'm such an animal lover, but whatever, you can sue me. I, this was easily my favorite. And I would watch this over and over and over and over and over again. And there's very, very few shorts that I will ever go back and visit. And I could probably name them all like in on one hand over the last decade, ones that I remember well enough that go, oh yeah, there was this one, this one year, you know, and, and this is what it was about. And I went back and they, usually they involve animals come to find out. I was just realizing there's the one, of, <laughs> but this is one of those. This goes in that list for me. I absolutely thought it was just, just so sweet. Well, and I think the way in which you describe the, the mannerisms of, of the cat, the same thing can be applied to the dog, the, the foley. And I don't know if there were actual sound effects used, uh, recordings of dogs whimpering or barking, but these are reminiscent of how my dogs are where they curl up next to me or they just get sad. Um, you know, they have emotion. And I think that this story depicted the emotion from the dog and the cat point of view in a way that was very realistic from a pet owner like myself and like yourself. Awesome. The last one is called hair love. And I had heard a lot about this one before I got a chance to see it, Patrick. I, it was kind of the buzziest of the animated shorts by far. I don't know. You don't spend a lot of time online, so you probably hadn't been in those circles. But for me, I had heard it being talked about. I knew that it had something to do with an African-American girl's hairstyle, and that was all I knew. But this short film brought me to tears, and it did that in a couple of different ways, actually. So it's made by a guy named Matthew Cherry, first of all, who is in a way following in Kobe Bryant's footsteps, um, which is interesting, you know, coming so close to his unfortunate death. Matthew Cherry was a college football player who actually got a cup of coffee in the NFL as a wide receiver before leaving the sport to pursue his dreams in the film industry. And that's really cool. I love seeing athletes who are doing anything out in the world that is exhibiting their other talents, whether it's like this artistically or whether it's from business or just, you know, being successful in general, doing something other than playing a sport. I think that's really important to see. And it's awesome that he is out there doing this and becoming an Oscar nominated short film director. But his intention here is clearly to bring much, much needed diversity and representation to the world of animated short films. And I thought he succeeded brilliantly with this beautiful story. I tugged on my heartstrings and it also brought me a lot of joy. I think this is the short film that I will recommend the most this year. And it comes at the perfect time because we even have states, mine included here in Washington that are, currently having to introduce legislation to make hair discrimination illegal. I mean, why that's a thing in 2020, I honestly don't know, but it is. And we have students that are expelled from schools because there are dress codes that 
are essentially, in my opinion, very sexist that differ what a boy's hair can be from what a girl's hair can be. And we are dictating these things. And so with these issues in the society currently kind of on the forefront of the news, this hits at a really good time. But it's not just about making a social statement about hair. It's about a dad who's trying to get through this experience with his daughter who wants to understand her hair and wants to do her hair. And it's got this extra little touching story about why her mom is not there for most of it. And it reminded me of how much my daughter refuses to let me do her hair. I am bad at little girl hair. And so I early on lost all rights to even brush Ashlyn's hair. Seriously, she wouldn't allow it because she would cry every time I tried. I was just terrible, Patrick, terrible. And this is like stringy, you know, very thin, long white girl hair, not the the locks of an African-American child who her hair is big and it is a lot more difficult to style. And she can do all these things with it. And she's watching these YouTube videos. And I just thought it was a really touching story about a little girl who had these dreams and trying to figure out what to do with herself and her identity and how her dad kind of plays a role in that over the course of just this really short story. It's it's fantastic. It is. I love this one. And it shows the life of a single parent played out beautifully in a way that doesn't necessarily uh, create familiarity with me, which I love. I love the fact that, you know, at a macro level, seeing all these films that are not from the United States, being able to see this animated short that is not part of my white culture and only hearing from friends about the beauty that comes from doing hair and how important that is as part of black culture, it's great to see it played out in a way that it's not just about hair love, it's about the stuff underneath, not literally, but metaphorically, in being able to see how being able to braid your daughter's hair or being able to be a part of that intimate moment brings you closer as a father and daughter in this one. And so I think by the end we get a beautiful story that's told and we also get it done in a really well done animation style that, that fits it to a T. In fact, you know, I'm going to keep saying this. I think all of these animated shorts chose their animation styles wisely mm-hmm. to help reinforce the stories that they're telling and the tones and the moods of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a huge thing. I'm not an animator, but I think that's such a crucial thing to think through when you're actually crafting a story is how do we want to tell this? Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I could not agree with you more. And I love what you are saying there about hair love. Well, the last section that we have is our documentary shorts. And this is a relatively strong group as well. Overall, I started with St. Louis Superman again for the, mostly the same reason. Sounds so petty when I say it out loud. But because it was in English. <laughs> but I watched them all, Dad Gummit, and I enjoyed the foreign language ones. I'm defending myself, but I didn't know anything about this. And this is the epitome of what a short film can do in documentary form. It is covering a snapshot in time. It is not trying to tell us this huge story of Bruce Frank Jr.'s life, right? But it is using a unique and interesting method, which is him kind of telling his five-year-old son 
about why this day is important and tying that into his activism work uh, around Black Lives Matter and around um, the devastating effects that his family and others have suffered from both police and then just in general gun violence. And I loved how it was told. I liked how quickly it moved. He's a battle rapper running for state representative. This guy became an immediate hero in a sense like i was i was so impressed by what he was able to accomplish in a short period of time by being so passionate about his beliefs it was inspiring to me and he had an impact he got stuff done he went and put his self in the role that would allow him to gain the ability to impact and make change and it's fantastic because honestly patrick what this showed me was that we can protest all day long and we can complain for weeks on end about the injustices in the world and the things that we think need to change. But unless we have people like Bruce who are sacrificing their time and putting themselves on the line to stand up in a way that actually does move the needle, then what are we really ever going to expect to be different? And so we need ourselves to be more like Bruce. Uh, I just, I love this. I thought it was great. His kid is super adorable. I love them doing the USMNT chant at the end of this during a parade. Um, the, I believe that we will win chant. It was a great way to end it. Uh, and I just I thought this was a perfect example of what a short documentary should be. I agree. And I said pretty much the same thing you did in, in my reactions that I didn't even know about him, which is great because all these documentaries give you insight into events or people that you wouldn't otherwise know, but in a way that it allows you to become inspired, become reactive in a positive way. And with him, I think the thing that I really drew from this is his unconventional way of doing things. He wasn't offensive necessarily. He was who he was, and he used that to its strength. I also like that the doc didn't overly emphasize that, that he's the everyman, that he's the commoner, that he's – no, he's a representative of the state, and he doesn't apologize for who he is. In fact, he uses his experiences and his history to be able to be inspired and to motivate him. I mean, he's very unapologetic about the fact that he wanted to create this day centered around his brother but as a means to do something bigger. And the last thing that I remember writing down was that small moves can make a bigger difference. Even when we get that coda of knowing where he is now, he has echoes of his impact in other people. This documentary is one of those representations in that we under, we don't just know about him. We know about what he's done and the fact that he doesn't have to move mountains in order to make a difference that, his difference has had and maybe will continue to have an impact in that city, in that state, in a way that motivates more people. I mean, the thing that took him a year to get to its fruition, that legislation, it came to pass, which tells me that, look, if you want something and you have, you can, it can be, do, you can do it. It may not happen, but don't let that be an excuse for not trying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was, and the sacrifice part of it, you know, it tells us at the end that Bruce had to leave the activism after this because 
he was worn down and it was having a negative effect on him mentally and physically. And, and that's a very real thing. And so I think supporting those who are willing to put themselves out there is important as well um, and helping lift them up and letting them know that people are behind them because we can't all be Bruce, but we should all certainly strive to like be involved in some way um, for those causes that are that close to our heart. So yeah, totally inspiring. Love that one. The next one we'll talk about is probably the best titled film of the year, short or otherwise, in my opinion. The title of this is just fantastic. It's called Learning to Skateboard in a War Zone If You're a Girl. And I didn't know what the heck I was getting into when I fired this up, Patrick, and I'm guessing you didn't either. But I was impressed that they went where they did with this story it's about a school that is teaching little girls in afghanistan um, post-war essentially Um, they're trying to encourage them to learn to read to write to help them gain confidence and also to learn skateboard (laughs) the wackiest combination of things to throw in there Uh, But they use the skateboarding as a means of teaching other lessons as well. And it's kind of cool to see how that plays out. You know, this is all in opposition to their culture's treatment and expectations of women. And so I found it to be incredibly sweet and important that way. Just encouraging to see those people working against this kind of awful, oppressive power and the traditions that still exist in that country and in any country. So it's a great reminder, I think of the privilege that we have in America, despite our own struggles with inequity as a nation, that we aren't where these people are. That's for sure. We are further along than they are and they have some work to do. And I, you know, I enjoyed watching the little Afghani girls doing skateboard tricks and jumps that made me smile. My favorite thing about this is that they call their skate park skateistan. <laughs> Which it probably shouldn't be my favorite thing, but I just, I literally was laughing out loud when I heard that. I was just giggling in, in glee because I was like, that is what it should be called. That gimmick, that is perfect. It's Skatistan in Afghanistan, you know, like, oh, it was wonderful. I like that the documentary kind of had a bouncy score to it. It was very uplifting when they were doing sequences of skating, but then it alternated and it had much more serious orchestral music during the sections when they were talking about the seriousness of the post-war dangers that they're still facing. Ultimately, for me, I thought that this one was quite a bit too long and repetitive for what it is. It seems to bounce back and forth and just tell you the same thing over and over and over and over. But I'm really glad I watched it, and so I can forgive that. I love this one. This is probably my favorite of, of these five. And part of it is because it inspires hope. Um, another reason is... When you look at the lives of these these girls that are learning to skateboard, it reminds you that kids need to be kids wherever they are. And oftentimes, because we're so ethnocentric and we take our American culture for granted, we think, oh yeah, I can go skateboard anytime I want, or I can go to the arcade, or I can go to a movie. And we don't think that there is oppression, at least not in an obvious sense or not in a deliberate sense. So having an outlet like this place for them to learn to gain confidence 
is something that really, really allows the audience to connect to because it reminds us that at the end of the day, these are kids and kids need to learn something new. They need to learn something that's fun. The smiles on their faces, Aaron, I think is probably my favorite part of this documentary. There's a great moment when they're going down the ramp. It's like this big, big moment. Uh, it's like one of the hardest things because they have to have confidence in themselves. They can't be thinking about it. And they put themselves in a position and there's this one moment with one of the girls who falls and she starts crying and you just see the reaction from some of the other girls, from the teacher, essentially saying, don't cry. It's okay. Don't stop crying. But not in a mean way. It's a way of saying, it's time to move forward. This is part of it. And just watching all these individual stories play out. Yeah, I think it was a little bit too long and, and somewhat repetitive, but the things that they bring up remind us that this skate park, this skating school, all this education isn't in a vacuum. I mean, they're still dealing with explosions once a week and bombings and things like that. And so I think the documentary has this ability to balance the reality of the world they live in and this kind of capsule of hope that these girls are part of. And by the end of the documentary, I wanted to visit this place. I wanted to sit down with them and say, hey, show me what you can do on that skateboard. I, I wanted to hug these girls. I wanted to tell them how proud I was of them. I mean, this is something that doesn't happen to me when I watch <laughs> these these types of short films, but this did it and I'm glad it did. Yeah, absolutely, man. It was it was uplifting for sure. And now we move into the less uplifting section of our documentaries. <laughs> we'll save one that's a little more smiley for last, but these next two are much less so, I would say. <laughs> and we're going to talk about one that I knew nothing about, this story. It, the documentary was called In the Absence. This was brutal to watch, okay? It is... Mostly just archival footage of a past event from several years ago where a ferry sunk and, you know, I didn't even write this down. This is in Korea, right? Is this Korea or is it China? I think it's Korea. I should probably get that correct. South Korea. South Korea. All right. So yeah, this is a big deal. So we don't want to call out the wrong country here. So South Korean ferry ends up starting to sink and we watch as the ferry is going down and the government is we we are juxtaposing these images with the audio of the crews that are arriving on site with both the government and then also their rescue authority and we are hearing as these people are making decisions about what to do or in many cases not making any decisions and the ferry is getting closer and closer to going down. And simultaneously, we're cutting back and forth and we're hearing from parents who lost children. There was a large amount of school kids on a trip on this ferry. Hundreds of people perished. Several, I think 300 plus lost their lives in this event. And we see what was the most impactful thing to me, which was some actual text messages. I don't even want to talk about it, to be honest, but like there's text messages from the kids on the ferry 
to their parents about you know, teachers say to stay here, not to do this. It's trying to line up timelines so we see what the ferry is looking like in this time, and it's on its side, it's halfway into the water, and the kids are following what these adults say, which is we're not gonna we're not gonna run, we're not gonna jump, we're not gonna escape, whatever the case may be. And we know that they eventually lose their lives. And it is real. This is not a movie. <laughs> this is something that happened, and it is heartbreaking, it is enraging to hear the lack of responsibility that is taken by the government at this point. There's the most affecting shot of the documentary for me occurs at the end and I think sums it up really well where these parents are at the dock where the wreckage of the ferry has been pulled out and they want to get in there and they want to see it and there are rows and rows of police officers behind this fence there to protect them from it. And the camera shows us the parents going wild, right? Banging on the fence, you know, let us in, let us see. And then we see this lineup of police officers and there's one lady in the front um, who is taking a tissue and she is clearly wiping away tears in her eyes as she's standing there as this force that is supposed to be protecting this dock, this ferry from these parents outside. But she clearly is emotionally siding with the parents. And it was just such a dichotomy in that shot. It was really affecting uh, for me. And I, I hated learning about this and knowing that it even happened because, you know, if we had a one word takeaway, Patrick, it would be avoidable in my opinion, because there is so much death that happened. There's a moment in this documentary where early on in the ferries sinking, we see the captain escaping. It's all captured on film. I know. I see you going, getting mad on the other side of the, the camera here. I, yeah, it, it is like you, I'm like, go down with the ship. You asshole. Like, you know, you know, I mean, I, that's how I felt. Okay. Because it was like, how are you going to leave hundreds and hundreds of children and, and, and other people to die? And you're going to climb your butt onto anyway, it's a tragedy. And I don't even know how to evaluate it that much as a actual piece of filmmaking, because uh, it was just so emotional to see the story. Um, it was good to know that the people involved were held accountable after the fact. So, uh, I mean, I think that there was some accountability and that they're still looking for more from what I read, but yeah, this one was rough, rough, rough to watch. Yeah. I, I don't want to add anything else to what you're saying. Cause I agree with all of it, but I had three bullet points of one word a piece, ridiculous, angry justice. That, I mean, that pretty much sums up how I felt about the documentary. It's a great one, but because it did exactly what it was meant to do. And as someone who doesn't live in South Korea, who's not connected to that at all, it connects you to the humanity of what precious life is and how it needs to be um, taken care of. Yeah. One thing that the documentary tells us too, is it tells us uh, briefly shows the story of a man who was one of the very first divers on scene because civilians had to get out there and actually try to salvage and save as many as they could. And he ends up killing himself a year later because he can't handle the, the trauma from the experience. It's just, it's crushing. 
uh, again, avoidable. It was avoidable. And that's the problem. It's one thing when you have an earthquake. It's one thing when you have tsunamis and these things, you cannot get away from a force of nature. It's another thing when a ferry starts to sink and you have hours or however long to enact a plan and to save people and you just don't because you don't know how to make decisions. It's, oh my goodness, it's terrible. Or because you make the wrong decisions because you're selfish and you want to make yourself actually look better by by staging things. Correct. Worried about the optics. So, so invigorating. Invigorating? Invigorating? That's not, not invigorating. I hope not. Infuriating, maybe. Infuriating, thank you. (laughs) It's late and I'm frustrated and I'm just mad. You know, it's it's called mad. No big words tonight. No more big words. (laughs) Uh, The next one, we got two left. Life overtakes me. So, I don't have a lot to say about the last two, honestly. I'll just tell you up front. This one was very boring to me, cinematically speaking. I think that it is a story that should be extremely emotionally affecting. It introduces us, or at least it did to me, to a very rare and really tragic condition where young refugee children withdraw into a coma-like state due to the extreme trauma of going through the refugee process. Um, It focuses on like three families, and I think... For me, I needed a wider context. I needed more medical expertise woven into this. It left me feeling like I questioned whether or not this was actually a thing more than anything. And so I felt a little weird afterwards. So this is that documentary that I mentioned earlier about reinforcing the fact that weird things do happen. And, you know, the previous one as well. I honestly felt emotionally connected to the second of the three kids because it was a boy and I could couldn't help but think about my son and about the fact that of course I'm not a I'm not a refugee from Sweden that is trying to move his family to get um asylum from someplace but it was just really sad Aaron to watch these parents take care of their lifeless children and it was weird at the same time because these kids were essentially just sleeping all day, but they couldn't open their mouths. They couldn't feed themselves. And it is unbelievable. I hope that it's, I say, I hope that it's true, not because I want these kids to experience this, but for the sake of the fact that if this is not true, this is a really sick joke. I wanted a little bit more hope than I got, but uh, overall, this is a, it was a slower documentary, but it was equal. It was equally just as effective for me. Well, I'm glad. I, I don't. I don't doubt that it will be for many. It just definitely wasn't for me. Um, the last one is Walk Run Cha Cha. <laughs> I saw your face. That was funny. <laughs> Sweet romantic story. I felt happy for Paul and Millie, the couple that we see here. Um, they'd been through a lot, uh, speaking of like refugees and immigrants type stories here, but I didn't think there was anything important for viewers to take away from this. It was just like, hey, here's some cute people who are old and came over from Vietnam and now they cha-cha and it's adorable. And I was like, but why do I care? Like there are millions of people in the world whose home videos I don't watch and I don't need to. And why is this nominated? It was like, 
it was the most blah experience of them all. Like I didn't I actually liked it more than life overtakes me, but I felt like life overtakes me at least has a purpose. You know what I mean? Like there's a reason for it to exist. This, I truly did not feel that this needed to be a story that was told. And I, I hate this. I probably sound like a curmudgeon, but that is where I landed. No, I mean, you're, you're exactly right. I think five minutes of the 20 minutes were spent giving us footage of the cha-cha class, which was probably the most exciting of this documentary. And I admit it was the last one that I watched. So I was kind of ready to be done, but I was just like, okay, I I think you nailed it on the head with the, if I, I don't need to watch other people's home videos. You're exactly right. It's felt like just a little home video archive footage. Like, great. I'm glad you guys got together and that you're cha-chaing your way into lovely romantic relationship. I mean, I put very sweet, not very impactful as my notes. And that's pretty much how I left it. Good. Well, we're on the same page with, I think, most of these. So yeah, like I said, good crop. Uh, hopefully you can find them. I know that the vast majority of these are available out there online somewhere for you to see listeners if you haven't got a chance yet. So check some of them out. And of course, comment on our Twitter or in the Facebook group or wherever you find us on social media. Let us know what you thought of them. Which ones were your favorite? What are you rooting for on Sunday when the Oscars roll around, etc. And with that said, we are going to do our Oscar predictions. All right, Patrick. So we don't have our confidence points marked down yet. We will do that offline after this exercise is over on the podcast and we will Take a picture and send those to Jeremy for safekeeping. But right now, we're just going to go over our picks. This is it. We're locking them in. I got to tell you, man, I struggled with this. I always struggle with this. But there are so many movies that I would be comfortable winning a lot of these awards. And most Oscar years, I'm upset because I know that there's this handful of movies that are going to win things that just make me mad because I didn't like them. Not the case this year. I can guarantee many of my favorites are not going to be the choice, but I love like six or seven of the best picture winners so much that I'll be happy for the winners regardless. And that kind of puts me at ease anyway. So I'm excited about that, but we're going to make our picks. We're going to tell what we think is going to win. And then we'll also mention what we want to win just for fun. With that, we're going to get started. Are you ready? Let's do it. All right. So, Starting with visual effects, I am predicting the win goes to 1917, and I also want 1917 to win. I believe that Avengers Endgame is going to take this one, but I also want 1917 to win. I think that if the Academy voters knew what visual effects meant, that they would probably pick Avengers Endgame. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm actually concerned that this is the honestly this is the one category that I could see Irishman sneaking it win out. I don't see it really doing that well, even though I think it has the most nominations or it's tied. I was reading something about there being like four movies with ten plus nominations. It's like a record. It's crazy, but I think the, the Irishman is gonna go home sad. And this is one where I could almost see them throwing it a bone, which would actually make me mad, even though I'm contradicting what I just said (laughs) earlier about that in the opening, that would make me very unhappy. It wouldn't make me as unhappy. You know, the Lion King could pull this out too. It's probably, we're probably discounting the Lion King too much because we didn't like the movie. 
yeah. visually. The reason we didn't like it is because the visuals were too good and too realistic. So <laughs> it's like planet Earth. <laughs> we're probably screwing this up already. We're probably oh for one. We might as well just stop here. Okay, I'm gonna but put a one next to that one probably for my confidence. Will, I know. <laughs> as we go, you're like they're all one in confidence, Aaron. What am yeah. I doing? Um. <laughs> Uh, next up, we got costume design. I think this is going to go to Little Women, and I also want it to go to Little Women. Yeah, I'm with you on both of those. I think that uh, I wish that Greta Gerwig would be getting more love in this category, uh, not only for herself, but for her feature film. But I definitely think Little Women is going to take it, and I want it to. The only other one I really would be super happy with winning this would be uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think it could be a sneaky contender uh, because that movie, if the Academy voters end up loving it, that movie could do some crazy sweep stuff that we're all just not being ready for. <laughs> and this would be one of those. Next, we have makeup and hair. I am predicting Bombshell, and I am also very much so wanting this to go to Bombshell because it's really the only legitimate shot it's got, and I want that movie to get an Oscar. Absolutely. I think that Bombshell will win, and I want it to win. I mean, Charlize Theron's transformation alone should merit an Oscar. Next, we have original song, and i got to be honest with you, I am not blown away by any of these songs at all this year. None of them leave me excited. I don't listen to them like I have in past years, but I think that the one from Rocket Man, <laughs> I don't even know what it's called, I'm Gonna Love Me Again, it's it's Elton John, man. Like I think that it's gonna take the win here, and I guess since the song that I actually care about is not nominated, yeah, I don't really have a dog in the fight. I don't care. I don't care what wins. <laughs> we are, I guess, we're like four for four, three for three at this point, because I'm the same way. I haven't actually seen a ton of these, and I think and hope that. Uh, Rocketman wins this one. For original score, this gets us into some categories where I start to waver because I could be fine with multiple things winning. I think that Thomas Newman is going to win his first ever Oscar. It sounds so weird to say that I, for 1917. I also hope that Thomas Newman is going to win his first Oscar for 1917 because I love him as a composer, probably top five all time for me personally. And I would really love for him to get a recognition, but there are so many great competitors in this category and a whole nother five that could be nominated that aren't there. So I would not be surprised at all if this goes to Joker like the Golden Globe did. Yeah, I, I think Joker's going to get it, but I would like to see 1917 win. I think Newman deserves this one. I think it's one that is incredibly memorable, but... You're exactly right. I, I even, you know, I, I'm not sad that Ford v. Ferrari didn't make it, but I loved that score as well, partly because I loved Ford v. Ferrari. But I think that Joker's going to take it, even though I want um, 1917 to win. Production design, I'm going to predict this goes to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I, I'm so torn. I kind of want it to go to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but it's really about a 50-50 want along with Parasite. I'd be perfectly fine if it goes to Parasite as well. I, I think it's going to go to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I want it to go to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think the expanse of the 
the production, all the different sets, to me, top it out over Parasite. But I think Parasite's a close second because of the strategic way in which the house is used, um, the way in which the the whole setup is there and how it's used. So it's close for me, but I both want and expect Once Upon a Time to win. All right. Only a couple differences so far. We're going to do sound editing and sound mixing together. We're not going to split them up because like the Academy, we don't necessarily know. No, we do know the difference, actually, but nobody else does. So it really doesn't matter. (laughs) Um, We're probably predicting the same thing for both because that's what happens on these awards. I'm going to say 1917 wins both. I'm going to say I want Ford v. Ferrari to win both very much so. This will be where we differ because I want and expect Ford v. Ferrari to win both. Well, you I know it's, are it's, it's bold. I know it's bold. wishful thinking. I know <laughs> Very low confidence in those. If you're smart, my friend, I'm probably going to be, but I would three. be fine losing these points if you're correct, because that would make me very happy. I remember coming out of the theater after my second viewing of that movie last weekend, just really being blown away by the sound design even more. It is incredible. And it means so much to that story where 1917 has a million different elements that you could kind of get lost in any one of them and you'd be fine without it being spectacular in my opinion. Whereas Ford V Ferrari needed that to be spectacular and it was, but anyway, I still go 1917. I'm starting to predict some, some big things for that movie film editing. I do predict Ford V Ferrari for a win here. And it is also the movie that I want to win film editing since Apollo 11 was not nominated by the stupid Academy. I like that you called them the stupid Academy, not just the Academy. (laughs) There has been no better editing achievement, in my opinion, in maybe the decade than Apollo 11. I mean, look at what it was required to put that thing together and make it. And and anyway, whatever. Do do you think it's because it's a doc? I do. And they didn't even nominate it for best doc. That's just what they, that's what they do. They ignore the front runner for some, they didn't nominate the, what's the Mr. Rogers doc that we all were, this is definitely going to be the winner. And they didn't even nominate it. Boo. <laughs> it's what they do. It's what they do, man. So Ford v. Ferrari, Ford v. Ferrari for me. Well, to me, uh, Parasite is my pick to win, and Parasite is what I want to win. I absolutely love the way that it was put together. Some of the cutscenes were fantastic. The heist moments, the heist feel of, of the movie, I think, were really perfect. This ties in nicely with the cinematography, but I think that it's going to come away with the Oscar. All right, our next one is Best Foreign Language Film, Parasite, Parasite. No question. Parasite, Parasite for me as well. Moving right along. (laughs) Um, (laughs) All right, we just talked about these. We'll go over the short films next. Best Live Action Short Film, I am predicting The Neighbor's Window to win, and I also want The Neighbor's Window to win. And this one, I'm strongly in favor of that one over the rest. Okay. Well, I picked Saria because I think it's going to hit an emotional gut punch for a lot of people. So I expect it to win, and I want it to win. I think that's bold. I don't think they're going to watch it, but we'll see. Okay. We shall see. Uh, Best documentary short feature. I am going with the incredibly named Learning to Skateboard in a War Zone if you're a girl to win, but I definitely want St. Louis Superman to win. Okay. Well, I'm picking Learning to Skateboard in a War Zone if you're a girl to win, and I definitely want it to win. Best animated short. I am picking Hair Love to win. 
and I, I'm torn. I, you know, I, I think for the purposes of a movie that can benefit from being awarded more than another, I want Hair Love to win as well. Kitbull is, has my heart. It is my favorite of them by far, as far as what will stand the test of time. So in theory, I should be picking it, but I think that it's important for Hair Love to win. And so that's what I want. This may be my lack of being on social media as much as you, but I'm picking Memorable as the winner, even though I would love to see Hair Love win. Fair enough. That's totally acceptable and understandable. I mean, probably won't win, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> another yep. low, I, another I hope low it number. <laughs> hope you're wrong. Um, best documentary feature. I am definitely predicting American Factory to take this. I 100% want Forsama to win this award, and I still encourage anyone out there who is listening to this podcast and has not seen Forsama to go watch this documentary. It's on YouTube for free. I think there's several streaming services that have it, but it is easily up there, right there with Apollo 11 as my one and two documentaries of the year. So uh, Forsama would be the one I want. Well, I'm picking for Sama to win, even though I want Apollo 11 to win. You can't want Apollo 11 to win when it's not nominated. I can want anything to win. I mean, I okay, well, I want Apollo 11 to win, too. There we go. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter what we want, Patrick. <laughs> the Stupid Academy gonna... picked it, right? <laughs> exactly, the Stupid Academy. <laughs> Next up is cinematography. So in this one, I'm definitely predicting 1917 and Roger Deakins to take this. And I want Roger Deakins and 1917 to take this as well. I'm in the same boat with you. 1917, 1917. Original screenplay. Um, now we starting to get into the big categories here and some of these that are just hard to pick and choose and e- either way, whether it's predicting or the want, because we like so many of them. We think so many of them are worthy, but for original screenplay, this is the other thing before I give this. So what I realized as I was starting to fill this out is that when we get into the screenplays and the director and the best picture awards, these become very much tied together. And so I have to think about not just in a vacuum who would win one award, but what is it going to look like at the end of my ballot? Is it going to be all one movie or do I think they're going to spread the wealth with their votes, uh, how are they going to recognize all of these different incredible movies and perfor- performances and filmmaking talents? So that came into play for me. Ultimately, I settled on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood winning this uh, for Quentin Tarantino. It was really tough, Patrick, because Parasite took the WGA award, which is a huge predictor for this. But... The caveat is that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was not eligible. So it was not beaten by Parasite head-to-head. It didn't go up against it. Um, so I think that the Academy is going to want to award Tarantino. I think he's won two in this category before already. So there's history there. I think he's going to win. And as much as I loved Parasite's screenplay, I think the really unique and special thing that Quentin Tarantino is doing in his narrative is with his revisionist history fantasy style. It's got a purpose that makes me happy and it 
makes us remember someone in a completely different way historically than we ever did for all of time. And that is impactful. And so for that reason, I think I want him to win. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And I think both of these were in my top two when it came to picking the winner. Um, I actually went backwards. I picked Parasite to win, even though I want Once Upon a Time in Hollywood to win. I think a lot is going on in both. Ultimately, though, I think the way in which the screenplay was crafted for the story, I think everything felt really balanced with the voiceover, with the dialogue. I think um, Bong Ho is a master at being able to put this dialogue together. And he has, over the course of his last two or three films, I think gotten better at his uh, his writing. Can't disagree. I mean, I won't be upset <laughs> if he wins. That's not going to hurt my feelings, that's for sure. Adapted screenplay. I am going to pick Greta Gerwig and Little Women here. This is probably somewhat of a heart pick. I'm a little nervous because Jojo Rabbit won the WGA version of this. So when the guild goes with that, it makes me almost just want to follow them. I'm also weirdly a little bit afraid of the two popes. That's the kind of movie that like, it's got a couple of Oscar nominations. Nobody's talking about it. And I feel like it's the type of movie that Academy voters might just be like, Oh, this is so great. You know, uh, this is a really clever idea to have a movie about two popes. And it'd be really sweet and funny. So I wouldn't be shocked. If its name gets called and we're all going, huh, picking our job off the floor, but predicting Little Women, and I also want Little Women. I'm the same way. I want another win for Greta Gerwig's film and uh, Little Women for the Oscar and Little Women because I love it. I like your reasoning. Yes, I love Greta Gerwig, and I think we should hang out sometime. Well, you let me know when that's happening. So yes. I can come. <laughs> we'll do. All right. Uh, can we bring Noah? Her partner as well. So we can sure. talk about marriage story. Sure. And how he destroyed me. Make him own up to that. Anyway. <laughs> Gonna get tough now. Animated feature. Dude, I literally could see this going anywhere. I, at this point, I honestly could. The, the pick is Toy Story 4 because I'm not bold enough to step out on a ledge, but. I will not be surprised if it's Missing Link. I will not be surprised if it's Klaus. And I will not be surprised if it's I Lost My Body. Like, it is that crazy at this point. There is the most lack of momentum I've ever seen for a Pixar film that we all think is the automatic frontrunner. So, I, I don't know. But I'm picking Toy Story 4. And anybody who knows me knows that I desperately want this to go to Missing Link. I am sort of with you. I definitely want Missing Link to take this. It's the one that I think you and I were highest on. It's also the only one that we've actually, well, no, we covered Toy Story 4. Um, but it's the one that we both agreed on of the ones that we've covered. <laughs> but as with some of the other awards, I'm going to go with Klaus. Uh, it got a lot of love recently at uh, one of the recent award ceremonies. And I think that the Oscars are going to have some carryover with that. So Klaus is my pick, but Missing Link is my favorite. Well, I won't be surprised, like I said, if that happens. I know that most of the world will be shocked, but those of us who follow this industry closely are not necessarily going to be that. Director, I just made my pick because this is the one I haven't been able to decide. And this is where everything ties into like what's getting best picture, 
what's getting the screenplays. And this is, it, it, I mean, dude, I don't know what to say. It's Quentin Tarantino, Bong Joon-ho, or Sam Mendes. And so much of your pick for this feels like it, it relies on what you're picking for best picture, right? And what do you think the Academy is going to do? Are they going to keep them tied together? Are they going to try to split them so that they can spread the wealth? I'm going with QT here. I think that it's his time. I think he's running out of time because he's kind of put himself on a clock as to how many movies he's going to make. And this is a movie about Americana, a movie about Hollywood. And ultimately, I think it's going to get more votes by a very small smidgen than Bong Joon-ho and Sam Mendes. And I think it's, I think that if we were able to see the numbers, this might be one of those like closest votes ever kind of thing where it's like one has 33, one has 32, one has 31 sort of split. But I mean, I have no, no confidence in this whatsoever. I'll just tell you, it's like a zero for me if I could do that. But Quentin Tarantino and who do I want? I want this. To, I, I think Bong Joon-ho did the best job. But I still want it to go to Quentin Tarantino because I want him to walk away with an Oscar. So that's the fan in me speaking. But that's how it is. Yeah, this is a this is a three way tie between Mendez, Tarantino, and Bong Joon Ho. All three have done a phenomenal job with their works, and they've done them all so uniquely. It's not like one is repetitive of the other two. They all feel like a Sam Mendez feature. A Bong Joon-ho feature, a Quentin Tarantino feature. And if I had to pick which one I want to win, I'm split between all three of those. But if I ultimately you're holding something to my head that has a bullet in it, I would probably have to go with Sam Mendes for the win. But I would love to see Bong Joon-ho win for Parasite. All right. It's going to be fun to see what happens that night. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, I said, this is where it's cool to have so many that you appreciate in the field because you're less likely to be disappointed. Even if it's not that person that we said we kind of want, we'll be just thrilled for the person that does end up walking away with the statue. Acting categories up next, supporting actress. Laura Dern, Marriage Story is my pick. Laura Dern, Marriage Story has and always will be my desire and my want. I'm right there with you. I think she's going to win. She's my favorite, but I love seeing Margot Robbie in this for Bombshell. She is great in it. And I think if Laura Dern were not in this, Margot would be my, my lock. Your want. My want. Your want or your pick. So I, I don't True, think with, Scar- is- with ScarJo and Marriage Story, I think that's exactly. going to be hard to, to go with. I just, yeah, I just don't see the Academy picking Margot Robbie for her role, but I agree with you. Like from a favorite perspective, she would be my second favorite uh, due to what she pulls off and how, and its importance in the film for her to pull it off. But Laura Dern is so memorable and her short spot that, you know, whatever, can't help it. Evil. <laughs> there you go again. That's so great. <laughs> Supporting actor, Brad Pitt, Brad Pitt for me. And that's all I got to say about that. Same here. Lead actress. I really want to predict the upset. I really, really want to predict the upset 
but I can't because I don't trust the stupid Academy. <laughs> I think that they're going to go for Renee Zellweger and Judy because it's Oscar Bates 101, essentially. And it is a good performance, but by Oscar Bates, meaning, you know, it's in a biopic and it's a very emotional performance of someone that we're learning about, yada, 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 has ties to Hollywood, all this stuff. It's worthy of being nominated, but I want Scarlett Johansson from Marriage Story to win this. And I would love, love, love to see that upset. Yeah. And I think it could. I just don't think the odds are in its favor. No. The odds will never, for forever, never be in their favor because I agree. I think Renee is going to win for Judy, but I would definitely love to see ScarJo get it for Marriage Story. Lead actor, Joaquin Phoenix, has the momentum, and I think that Joaquin Phoenix will take the win. The only real competitor here that could sneak in there is Adam Driver for Marriage Story. Won't hurt my feelings at all, but I, at this point, think Joaquin will win and I also want Joaquin to win. Yeah, I think this is going to be a phenomenal win for the Joker just in general. The fact that we could potentially have two portrayals of the same character winning the best actor role. Um I don't think the Academy is going to pass that up. I think they're going to say, hey, look, we're going to make some history here. But I also think that Joaquin deserves it. His performance in this was off the charts good in a completely different way than than ledgers not even comparable doesn't need to be comparable but equally as memorable and i think he deserves it yeah i try to think that way too like could anybody else out there do this and you know there's other of these performances that i think other actors could pull off very very similar but there's not someone i think that could pull off what joaquin did in the way that he did so Agree with you there. And that leads us to the big dog, which is best picture. I am predicting 1917. I want weathering with you. No, um, I want little women to win this because that's my favorite movie of the year. But I also want once upon a time in Hollywood to win this. And I want Marriage Story to win this. And I would like Parasite to also win this. So if we could just have like a six-way tie, because they're all in my top seven of the freaking year, that would make me a very happy person. Actually, Joker, I have seven out of eight, or seven out of nine of these, or whatever the number is. I don't know how to count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Seven of these nine are in my top eight pictures of the year, Patrick. It's insane. So I've never aligned with the Academy like this. Honestly, whatever. I want one of those to win, and it will, but I am predicting 1917. I'm predicting 1917 as well. My fast racing heart pick is Ford v. Ferrari. I'd love to see that. It won't happen at all, but I'm so glad that it's in that category. It's it's great to be nominated. This is the first time that I felt like it's such a thrill to be nominated, and what an honor, because it is. I mean, this is a category that is filled with all stars uh, of, of movies. But I'm predicting 1917. If I had to be realistic about my favorite pick, I would probably say Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Awesome. Well, that's good stuff. And that's it. That's the end of this rather long Oscars prep episode from us. I hope you enjoyed this, listeners. We will get out of your ears right now and not take up any more of your time other than to say thank you for listening. 
and look for what's coming up next, which is our Oscars recap and the Feeler's Choice announcement on the Tuesday after Oscar Sunday. And if you don't have a place to come talk about the movies or the Oscars, uh, when they go down, feel free to come join our awesome Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash feel and film, I think is how you get there. And we would love to have you be a part of our community. That being said, I guess we will check you out after the Academy does their thing. The Stupid Academy. The Stupid Academy. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places, and I'd love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter, but be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.